0: Hi, I'm Gary and this is episode 128 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today we'll be looking at one of the key figures in the rollout of charging hubs in the UK, Maz Shah. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. Before we start I wanted to say thank you to everyone who came to say hi at Fully Charged Live in Farnborough recently. The whole event was excellent with something for everyone. And congratulations to Robert Llewellyn, Dan Caesar, and all the team at Fully Charged. Our main topic of discussion today is a discussion with Maz Shah. You may or may not know Maz. He's involved with EVA England. He did a Land's to John O'Groats run in an Ionic 5 with friend of the podcast and former guest Andrew Till. He had an e-Nero before swapping it to an Ionic 5. And he has no home charger, nor has he had one for about four years. But what a lot of people know Maz for... Is He's the guy who's tracking the Charger rollout across the UK, primarily the GridServe electric highway updates and the Osprey hub rollouts, but he's also keeping an eye on other bits and pieces, like the SMMT month-end figures for EV sales in the UK. Welcome, Maz.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honour. It's great
0: to have you. uh, I know we wanted to get you on for the roundtable at the back end of uh, last season, and the timing didn't work out on that, unfortunately, but um, you're here now, and that's all that counts. Great. Tell me your EV origin story. How did you first get into them? <laughs> so, I mean,
1: this was back when I was learning to drive quite some time ago. Um I was, was probably about f- 5, 6 years ago. Um and I really wanted an electric car as my first car. I kind of half jokingly always you know said that. But it it was, it was not a the the most cost-effective option out there. And I started looking at hybrid cars because I just assumed uh, that hybrid cars would be cheaper. Um, Mm -hmm. Turns out they're not, at least when you compare them with the Renault Zoe and the Nissan Leaf. And it was when I was looking at hybrid cars that I came across uh, the Renault Zoe. And I was quite surprised that there's this electric car that's supposedly, you know, only costing Mm £5,000. And that's when I kind of got really interested in EVs. In in the general sense, you know, I was aware of Tesla um, for many years before that, but not, not the other kind of mainstream or other EVs, basically. Um, and I got really fascinated when I started looking into the Renault Zoe, understanding what the battery lease was, what the battery was, what the c- capacity is, the different terminology that I'm now familiar with. Um, and really, it just became an obsession from that point. Uh, I started looking at the Renault Zoe, the Nissan Leaf, then I started following uh, various EV um, Twitter handles and and different podcasts, and I, it just kind of uh, grew from there organically. I've been following you know various models that have launched since then, and it's just crazy to think that back when um, you know in like twenty sixteen, you only had the Renault Zoe and the Nissan Leaf and the i three, and now it's it's almost becoming difficult to keep track of all the models on offer. Mm. Unfortunately, at that time, I didn't end up, um, you know, getting an electric car. I had a petrol car that I ran for, uh, I think, about a year um, or a year and a bit. And and then I came across uh, some leasing options, which I hadn't, again, hadn't considered those before. And I did the calculations and I could figure out, you know, that with the, the amount of money I was spending on repairing my petrol car, fueling it, taxing it and all of that, I actually had, you know, a uh, a decent amount of money that I was putting into it on a monthly basis and that wasn't too far off how much a, a new lease was costing so I ended up getting the original Ionic, the well the second original Ionic, the 38 kilowatt hour and that was over two years ago now and uh, it's been yeah since then I, I honestly don't think I will I will I could ever go back um, we've actually just ordered our second electric car as well so we will have two EVs without home charging, and I just don't see anything else as an option at the moment.
0: Right. I want to come back and talk about what the cars are in a few minutes, but let's just home in there on the uh, the home charging. I mean, you've famously, as as anyone who follows you on Twitter knows, you, you live without the home charging. And this does seem to be a big issue for a lot of people, um, especially when I post things on uh, Twitter about EVs. It's, oh yeah, what about those people who don't have charging at home? So What's your experience been like? I mean, really, how's it been without having the home charging?
1: I think largely there's a lot more thought and preparation that needs to kind of go into it, uh, especially when it comes to thinking about getting an electric car. You can't just be like, you know, I can get a home charger installed. So 100 miles, 200 miles is enough. You have to think about your local infrastructure, look at Map and other um, charging maps, and think about what's around in the places that you normally visit. So for me, you know, when I looked at it, I, the my workplace or near my workplace, there was a charger um, in the city center that I was living in at the time. There was a charger. And I knew that I was only doing about 10, 20 miles a day um, of driving and I could make it work. Um, and I think that's kind of what I try and say to everybody. It, it does depend on a case by case basis. Now I'm I consider myself to be a relatively like higher than normal mileage driver so by that we do about 12,000 to 15,000 miles a year but on the flip side of it I I feel like I'm in a privileged position where I can afford to put you know to order a lease vehicle that has a s- more significant amount of range so it certainly has gotten easier with a car that can do above 200 miles Whereas when we had the Ionic, which was about one hundred and fifty miles, it you do kind of you do get to those um, kind of cases where you're feeling like okay, it's, this is stretching it a bit. There's some cases where you do a trip, a uh, long distance trip, you get there no problem, you come back, but then the next day you need to do another long distance trip or even a short, medium um, distance trip, and it's cases like those where you kind of feel like okay, if I had a home charger. I could, I could do this with a bit more ease. But in terms of like the routine that I've developed now um, with the car that uh, we have, it's pretty, you know, pretty easy and straightforward and almost automatic. We know which chargers tend to work. We have chargers near our supermarket, the gym, like places like we, we will end up visiting anyway. Mm-hmm. And we luckily now recently have got access to a set of seven kilowatt chargers that are about 10 to 15 minutes walking distance so on those occasions when we do need to do a long trip and we need the 100% we just leave the car overnight over at that location I appreciate not everyone has those privileges and it does depend on a case-by-case basis but I always say don't dismiss EVs just because you can't have a home charger
0: now the I mean, you mentioned the seven kilowatt ones there. Am I right in thinking that prior to that, most of the public charging that you did was uh, rapid or high power charges, 50 kilowatt and above? Did, did you have any other sort of seven kilowatt ones that are local that you could uh, use if needed?
1: Yeah. So um, again, I'll caveat this by saying I live in Milton Keynes at the moment. I did live in Worcester before, which isn't as advanced in terms of infrastructure, but in both cases, um, we had a set of seven kilowatt chargers by the cinema and by the city center car park. Mm-hmm. And in those kinds of situations, we really only are interested in getting 30 or 60 miles during the time that we're there. Um, you know, it, with the cinema, it's even longer. You, you can get a lot more mileage in that sense. So it, it can still work without the rapid chargers, but you're kind of more limited to staggering the char- your charge sessions throughout the week Whereas with rapid charging, we can just do it once every week or every Mm -hmm. fortnight and not have to think about it at all.
0: So with the no home charging, you've had to rely a lot on the public charging, obviously. So what's your experience like there? Which are your favorite providers and how often do you hit issues with charging?
1: I would say that um, when I first moved to Milton Keynes, there were a lot of problems and it was getting frustrating um, and the most frustrating part to me is not the fact that the charger isn't working. It's the fact that the information I receive before planning where I'm going to charge was often inaccurate. So either the charger said, you know, on ZapMap or on the actual provider's own app or website, it would say it's working or it's not working. And I get there and it is or isn't. And that became really frustrating. Um, but slowly, so in, in my case, it is BP Pulse that predominantly are in Milton Keynes. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I was really itching for another provider to come in uh, to the point I was looking at the planning permissions within Milton Keynes for Instavo and other providers. But I, to be fair to them, Since then, they've actually managed to replace a lot of the legacy rapid charging units. And there was a period where they had an issue with uh, detecting RFID cards with their seven kilowatt units. Mm -hmm. And that was those two problems were, you know, the, the, the biggest issues I faced. The other thing is when there is a problem, when you go to speak to someone, so it's calling the customer service, how long does it take to get through to someone and then how long does it take for them to fix these problems? So just to kind of give a bit of context to why that can be a problem with a seven kilowatt, I noticed that to reboot one of um, uh, one of the seven kilowatt units, it takes upwards of 15 to 20 minutes just to reboot it. Um, That's not including how long it takes to get, get on to the phone uh, with them. The rapid charges are, are faster in that regard but there was still the issue of not being able to get through to someone so famously one time uh by the gym there was a, a unit that i knew was quite problematic and i wanted to get my you know weekly charge i called before leaving my house i mm-hmm. drove there and i think it was about 16 17 minutes on hold throughout that the you know the whole the journey or whatever and by the time i got there and tried the unit they still hadn't picked up the phone call. And then I waited another 10 minutes on top of that. And the reason why it's really frustrating is because often when, you know, in certain situations, you're going there for a specific reason, and you you expect to spend a certain amount of time. And also, when we're talking about rapid charging, we're talking about, you know, wanting to stay there for 20 to 40 minutes at most. And if we're, if we get there, there's an issue, and then it takes 20 minutes to get it resolved. It's it makes the whole charging experience just uh, almost feel pointless. And that time I did just leave it and just just went. Now, I, I will say that BP Pulse in particular, I tend to get about, uh, you know, they pick up in 60 seconds and they usually fix issues in five minutes. The, the other part of this is now that I've been here for, you know, over, over a year and a half, I know which ones tend to be problematic, which ones tend to be busy which is another problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and with, within my local area, I have a reasonable amount of confidence. It's only when we then look at long-term planning, on route charging, that I, I have, you know, my, my confidence reduces quite a lot.
0: My impression of BP Pulse at the moment, yes, they definitely went through a big dip in quality of service and reliability. I don't have a lot of empirical data, but anecdotally, I believe it's not as bad now as it was six, eight, 12 months ago. Would you say that's probably about accurate?
1: Yeah, I would say that's accurate. And I'll caveat this by saying my wife actually works for BP Pulse. I've I've, I've always been open about that. Um, (laughs) And I I I was I would say that I was one of the first people to kind of point out some of these issues with BP Pulse. And I'm also the first one to say that when things are getting better, like you rightfully said, and always I want to say like when I, because I do share some of these stories online on Twitter, and whenever I'm sharing these, it's always about trying to bring about visibility to some of these issues and um, bring about accountability as well. Because I do feel like particularly for people without home chargers, we are underrepresented, and what we're often doing is we're paying more money for a subpar service. I, I want to highlight some of these issues that are that are happening in the network, but they have gotten better, and they the, all networks are listening.
0: Yeah. Now that's very interesting. I'm not sure I was aware that uh, your wife worked for BP Pulse. I mean, one one of the big issues that I've had throughout all this is it's not the fact that they've had problems. I mean, you know, charge up charge point operators have problems all the time. It's the fact that when you try and get some contact with somebody to say, tell us what the issue is, tell us why you've got problem. why people are waiting 20 minutes on the line to get a sub-customer service. Tell us why it is that your charge is reliable. We didn't get anything. I've had a an open call on Twitter to say, anybody from BP Pulsar wants to come on the podcast and explain, I'm happy to host them for that. And it's been nothing. Now, you've got the inside track on this with somebody working for BP. Do you have anything you can share with us to give us some indication of why there was an amount of reticence in trying to be open and transparent about what the problems were?
1: Honestly, I'm, I'm, a, I'm as clueless as you. And, and partly the reason for that is my wife actually doesn't work with the public network. She focuses primarily on the private commercial side. Mm-hmm. So she actually doesn't see much of uh, what's happening with the actual Pulse network. But I share a lot of the sentiments in the sense that I think when you look at the network providers, it's not necessarily a matter of, you know, the quality of service. It's the quality of communication that really mm-hmm. stands out. I really do believe, you know, Instavolt, Osprey and Gridserve are, you know, they're really leading the way, not in just in terms of acquiring different types of hardware, trying things out, but also communicating what issues they're facing, what they're doing to resolve them. And I found it, yeah, I did find it very frustrating, especially living in Milton Keynes where I'm surrounded by BP Plus units, not getting that kind of, you know, that nuanced explanation of what's going on and sometimes not even getting an acknowledgement that there is a network-wide issue. And I think, well, I hope that, you know, all network operators see how important that is and how that comes part of delivering a good service?
0: It's not the fact that there are problems. It's the fact that they're not addressing or letting us know what the problems are. And we need the transparency. We need the communication. And that all becomes part of the service offering that a charge point operator has to give to uh, the public, and to the people who use its services,
1: and I, w- I will say that's partly why I've been quite an a-, a kind of active on the community is that. I kind of want to do what I can, especially with the, on the data side of things, to provide people with information as much as possible and empower them to kind of make these decisions of which networks to go with or wh- which sites to avoid in the case of grid serve upgrades. And same thing with my work at EV England. I'm quite an ab- advocate of what can we do to push for more kind of transparency and accountability
0: Let's jump into that a little bit. I mean, you're you're particularly famous um on Twitter at least for producing the maps to track the install of new charges. I mean you've started with Gridserve and their replacements for the electric highway. I think you've got ones for Osprey out there, um, and their their new hubs and that. So talk to me a little bit more about why you did that, how that's involved, where where are you getting the data from? You seem to be ahead of the curve in a lot of cases. Is that just um appearances? Is it coincidental or have you got the inside track?
1: Oh, it's a, it's a combination of things. I think initially where it started from was I noticed that these upgrades were happening. gridserve mentioned something, uh, kind of a, something uh, about the electric highway that they bought a certain portion of it and what their intentions were. Um, and I kind of, uh, to be honest, I don't remember exactly where it like the first sighting of you know the upgrade, but I noticed. Um, these photos were being shared maybe on twitter on Zapmap, and i noticed that they tended to you know have a certain process in terms of their upgrade which was to remove the current well to to first to fence the units remove the current ones away replace them and then remove the fencing and i noticed that this would be done in a three to four period um kind of time period and i actually had um A kind of a twitter thread going with dale vince the previous uh, about the owner of uh, ecotricity and i because i had mentioned kind of guesses of what i think will be upgraded this week and he kind of noticed that and said actually maz you're quite on the ball there and then i created the map because i thought okay if i if if what if i'm not just you know making random guesses that won't land anywhere, then maybe this can be useful for other people to, to plan and understand, you know, where, w- what the state of the motorway network will be uh, like in, in the coming months. Um, and then I kind of looked at, you know, started looking actively looking on places like zap map on Twitter, on the EV forums on Facebook for information about all the, uh, Electricity, uh, sorry, electric highway sites. Then I kind of I started automating the process. Uh, you know, talking, uh, connecting to the map API and and also um, PlugShare and, and the likes of those, and looking for specifically the electric highway sites. And now I've got something which basically sends me photos as they come of sites that I'm interested in, um, and it really just became kind of more of like a nerdy obsession kind of thing. Um, but it was always motivated by, you know, the charge, you know, charge point operators and the charging infrastructure in the UK gets a lot of mention, you know, gets a lot of slack. And as consumers, we have no visibility on, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. And for me, a lot of what I was trying to do with that map was provide that light at the end of the tunnel and sh- exactly show, OK, these are all the sites. Um these are the ones being upgraded this week. And if you you know follow my treats, you'll see that, oh, there's quite a lot of activity happening in these coming months. At some points, I couldn't even keep up with the amount of upgrades they were doing. I think at one point they said one a day for 100 days or something like that. And it was always motivated by, okay, look, electric highway has had a bad reputation. Can they salvage it? And I'm going to follow their progress and kind of see how it, um, plays out and to be fair I, I i never had an inside track with with gridsurf it was always just me manually looking at all of this stuff and then just trying to be you know as soon as i see something um sharing it with with twitter um and then you know uh, other operators noticed i was doing that and some of them have reached out to me um like osprey and they you know they provide me some with some information at times um to help me get ahead with the announcements and stuff. And again, it's always about like creating that buzz about the infrastructure. Cause to me, it's quite exciting. Like, oh my God, there's all these, uh, you know, hubs popping up everywhere. And
0: I, I love the maps. I think they're, they're excellent because one of the big issues that I have, and I'm not naming any particular CPO, cause I think they all have the same problem. They make these big announcements. Oh, we're going to be putting 15 new hubs in, but they don't say where. So you instantly get the, well, are they going to put any in Wales? Are they going to be any in Norwich? What about Lincolnshire? What about Scotland? What about the Lake District? Whereas if they came up and they said, right, we're going to put 15 out and one of them's going to be here, one of them's going to be here, one of them's going to be here, one of them's going to be here. We don't know when they're going Hmm. to be put in because there's so many different variables that that are involved, planning permission and getting the DNOs to get the uh, power to the site, etc. But if they just come out and say, this is what the roadmap is. Literally, it's the map. This is where they're going to be put. And it will be over two years. At least we can then look and say, Oh, I like the sound of that. I'm going to get one that's ten miles away from where I am. I'm going to get one that's just on my mother's doorstep so that when I go and visit her, it's it's handy. Now I know that Osprey did that with the hubs because they came out with a list and said, you know, we're putting one in Banbury and we're putting one in Ipswich, I think it was, et cetera, et cetera. So they've got the list out there and that's a very, very good start. And I think that's something that a lot of other charge point operators should be looking at. Uh, Not that we're going to hold their feet to the fire and say, you know, you promised us you'd put one in here and it's still not there, but at least it gives us some indication of what we can expect over the next, I don't know, 6, 12, 18, 24 months. So I think the maps that you do are excellent from from that point of view. I think,
1: you know, you raise a very good point that... There is an there is a huge appetite for us to have this kind of information and this understanding on, you know where where the hubs are going to go in, because otherwise these announcements get made and then it just kind of disappears and in, um, into thin air kind of thing. And I think that I hope now they realize that there is an appetite for this because you know, with the with the maps that I did, there was, you know, 250,000 views for the the GridServ one. And for something that's just literally just a Google map thing for electric vehicle charging, mm. it's like, it's kind of like, uh, it's a very nerdy thing. But I think it just highlights that, you know, people do want to know this kind of thing, and they do want specifics. And we do appreciate the amount of variables that are at play here. But like you said, just giving the location and maybe a rough estimate will help with that and as it stands you know someone like Eurogarages a new kind of player in terms of network operators uh, they you know I've had a chat with them and they've been very forthcoming with where they plan to put down their hubs and they you know they always caveat it with hey you know we give this time frame but that's dependent on this factor and this and that I think it's yeah it's something that people want and I think hopefully more charge point operators will kind of do more of
0: this. I mean, you look at um, our good friends at Instavol. I mean, they, I forget what the exact figure is, but over the last three or four weeks, they've put dozens and dozens and dozens of charges um, available, including the upgrade to the Alpatronic charges at um, Bambury. Most of them just came out of nowhere. Oh, we've got two at this McDonald's, and we've got two at this McDonald's, and we've got two at this McDonald's. And it's great when they make those announcements, but I think it would be even better if they could say, well, we're working on two here and two here and two here. They're not going to be ready for a while, but at least they're going to go in. And at least, you know, it whets the appetite. And I think it's, uh, it's good overall to have. Oh. Moving on, Twitter fame has also come to you, at least from my point of view, because you're one of the first people who sends out the SMMT stats for the uh, sales figures for uh, electric vehicles for the previous month. Um, usually comes out, what, about the second or third of the month? again, why is it you that ends up being the first to put these out? Have you got a little source inside or do you know where those are hidden or what's what's the story? Tell me, Matt. Nobody else will know. It's all right. Just tell me.
1: Well, well, (laughs) I I would, I will say SMMT is a hard one to get an inside source on unless, you know, there's, uh, you know, business partnerships and Mm -hmm. commercial incentives involved. I, again, this is more to do with my nerdy obsession of finding this information out and, You know, I first started looking at this in 2017, like kind of to mid-2018. I don't remember exactly when. But again, it came about from people talking about EVs, you know, they're saying they're not a thing, they're never going to be a thing. Or you have a group of people that are saying um, they are a thing, everyone's going to be wanting them from next year or, or that kind of thing. And uh, to me, I kind of looked at that and was like, okay, what's the empirical ed- evidence saying about this? Where can I get that information? And, you know, I looked at the vehicle licensing statistics. I looked at the DVLA government website. I, I just Googled and looked around at these things. Then I also came across the SMMT website. And kind of from there, I started, you know, tracking them every month. And, and I, I just would check at the beginning of every month. And then I noticed that in there on the website, it was kind of deeply hidden, to be honest, that they actually had a, an old PDF, which said which days the um, sales will be released. And that's probably where, you know, you're saying that I kind of had the upper hand. It was just because I had access to that information through uh, Obsession and, uh, then you know I kept an eye out for it, and I tried to keep you know a nice simple tweet for everybody. And the motivation behind all of that again was like, okay, what's the truth here? How are we doing in terms of EV sales? Because as uh, you know, m- many people mentioned, people can't fully grasp um, exponential growth. You know, it's, it's 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 one of those things where it's like something. Uh, you know, low numbers today, and then in a few years' time, it's just like, wow, where did all these EVs come from? Mm-hmm. And I did start noticing, you know, this kind of growth, and and I started noticing, you know, we we're getting doubling of uh, figures every year. Some years it was like triple. Um, and I started, you know, thinking, of you know, forecasting with a bit of guesstimation, and I kind of got to a point where I was like, okay, no, this is really going to start kicking off in 2020 onwards. And lo and behold, like now we're getting to really kind of interesting figures with like, you know, in December we had one in four, one in five. And and every time I've looked at these figures, I've always seen that it it breaks a new, they break a new record and then there's, you know, they may pull back a little bit, but then there's like this strong resistance, like, uh, you know, foundational demand, you know, in, in the sales that mean... we're we're not going back in terms of um, monthly figures and Mm -hmm. and we're only going up from here. And, you know, after I started sharing that stuff, more people started sharing it. Um, I don't, I I don't like to claim I'm the first. I'm sure there was someone else there and uh, you know, rightfully so. Um, But more and more people are kind of clued on to that. I think SMMT are noticing the interest in this as well, because for the first time this year, So for 2021, they announced the top bestsellers for EVs, which they'd never done before. And so there is definitely kind of this buzz going on. And now every month when you see those figures, you know, people are sharing them around, people are really celebrating them. And now we also have uh, some other kind of uh, groups of people that are not only just taking those figures, but really digesting them, breaking them apart. So one, one, you know, organization you may be familiar with is new automotive um they recently started really you know taking taking the numbers on a monthly basis looking at the breakdown of which ev manufacturers are you know delivering the most how you know how they're doing in terms of portion of their sales being ev but also looking at it from a regional basis and i think you know I, i love that kind of thing and i would recommend anyone who's interested in getting more specific details on on the market to look at that. Um, there is a slight discrepancy because they use slightly different sources of data, which means that they don't consider private um, license plate registrations. So they're about 10% kind of error in terms of when compared to SMMT's data. But, you know, it's still really useful information. And I've also want to shout out, there's a you know person on Twitter, Robert Osfield, I believe is his name, and he kind of takes a, this this raw data and then looks at a forecast of what you know if we plot an S curve, what is you know the state of the market going to be like in the next two years? And it's looking really optimistic. Like uh, it's 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 um, quite. He admits they're not you know completely watertight um, predictions, but we're looking at at least one month by the end of this year, start of next year, where EVs will be above 50% of the market share. And then looking at in the next few years where that becomes uh, not just a one outlier month, but it becomes, you know, like a quarter or, or, you know, six month spaces. Wow. So it's really exciting. Yeah. And um, again, the motivation is let's get people excited about these numbers because they're coming and they're coming quicker than most people realize.
0: When do you believe that the sale of battery-only electric vehicles will regularly be 25% or higher?
1: I think that there could be a point of no return by the end of this year in terms of 25%. Um, If I want to be more optimistic, I'd even say uh, from, I would say maybe from August onwards.
0: But of course, the thing that's sort of playing into all of this, which is it's almost an unknown, is the fact that, there's the demand side of things and there's the supply side of things. And obviously the SMMT is dealing with the supply side. So that's the number of vehicles that have actually come in and been registered. But, you know, there's a lots of people out there, myself included, who've got a, a vehicle on order and for various reasons, the delivery date keeps getting extended. Mine's gone from February to May to end of October at the moment. Wow. And there's <laughs> got to be a huge number of people who are in the same sort of situation because we're all hitting the same problems, the the lack of um, semiconductors and the problems with wiring looms from Ukraine and all that sort of stuff. So I think when that backlog finally sort of releases itself, I think we're going to see a huge jump in the supply figures versus the demand figures.
1: Yeah. yeah. So what, I, what I'd what i like to say is that these figures are more, um, as you rightfully say, are, are more ind- indicative of how our supply is evolving over time. Um, rather than the demand. And you're, again, right in saying that when you look at the lead times um, of EVs, and I do have some data on this, which I've shared, kind of, I have online, but I haven't really shared it publicly, because it's not, it's not watertight, again. But when I, you know, look at the figures that, you know, different lease providers uh, have, have, shared online you're looking at a lot of cars being at least a six-month wait mm-hmm. many cars especially the vw cars being a 12 minute 12 month sorry um lead time and you know if you're looking at we're selling you know 15k to 20k cars per month these are orders effectively you could argue that these are orders that were placed six months before or 12 months before that. Mm. Um, There are, you know, differences and, and some people can get cars, you know, quickly or they get lucky and that kind of thing. But it gives you an indication at least that, you know, maybe the demand is at least six times what we're seeing in the figures or even more than that. But I do have a lot of sympathy for anyone trying to order an EV and my first thing that i say to anyone who's kind of on on twitter and saying oh these evs won't ever pick up or i don't want to buy an ev because of xy reason now if it's a you know legitimate reason i do try and kind of have a conversation where we can share knowledge and learn from each other but if it's a very kind of obviously dismissive reason i usually say that's great because if you don't order that ev there's a better chance of other people that are interested Getting one um, I don't need you to buy EVs because enough people are um, and so you know i we ordered an ID free in August last year. It got postponed to August this year, and we basically canceled it because of that. Um, my brother has ordered a, an ID free which we he was told was um, going to be delivered in November. it's now half built in a factory so it's actually started being built but it's now waiting for a part to be finished uh being built and he's still waiting for that car so
0: and guess what car i've got on order the id3 oh
1: (laughs) great (laughs) i i honestly i i really do feel for you but Uh. it's it's worth the wait i mean i yeah the car is brilliant
0: Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Now on the subject of cars, let's look back to what you're driving, because um, one of the things that you're also known for is you, uh, Andrew Till, got in contact at one point and said, I'm doing Land's End to John O'Groats. Do you want to come along with me? And uh, you said yes. And you went in the Ionic 5 and then you ended up getting an Ionic 5 as a result. So talk to me about the Land's End John O'Groats trip and then uh, sort of how that Ended up with you driving an Ionic Five.
1: So yeah, yeah, you as you rightfully said, um, Andrew reached out to me and he said, you know, it'd be cool if we could do, you know, could do this together. And I thought, wow, that sounds fantastic. You know, just the the thrill of um, being able to do that kind of a journey in 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 you know, kind of early stages of of EVs. And obviously, it being the Ionic Five, especially at that time, you know, when he reached out to me, it must have been September, October, and I think they started delivering them in September, maybe late August. So it was really exciting at that time. It's one of the cars that I've been really kind of interested in since they first announced it, because I had an Ionic, I liked it. Um, I like what our Hyundai and Kia are doing with with EVs, mm-hmm. um, and I. Yeah so I was really fascinated about just doing the whole journey as a whole but then the the car itself and um yeah we we kind of arranged it all and and when you know when it came to the day it was uh we we had you know various challenges along the way I don't know if you 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 may have discussed with Andrew but you know we had random occasions like there was a coach at one of the uh, I think it was Gretna Green um Ionity hub and there was a coach that was taking up uh, the two bays because of the length of it. But yeah. then it also had two Renault Zoes um, taking up the other two chargers because they were escorting the coach. And I think those are the kinds of things you only come across when you're doing, um, you know, these crazy trips. And I think what it, what it, you know, really kind of helped us understand is this is a new car that is, you know, Giving you this, you know, two twenty kilowatt charging. Really, it's it is that kind of experience of you get there, you have a sandwich or something, and then you're ready to go. And comparing that with Andrew's previous trip and the Kia e-Niro, which again was more about efficiency, but the charging was slower. You know, as it stands, uh, I mean, Andrew's currently working on the videos, and you'll find out kind of the result of that and the and the comparison between the two offerings in a way mm-hmm. but it is kind of interesting and in also looking at the charging infrastructure and the level of maturity that that it's at and for us a lot of it was about you know different phases of 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 that of the experience and so first of all it's the planning it's the you know when i put in a destination in a better route planner um does it correctly find all the newest charging points does it report the charging speed correctly so for example with gridserve they had an issue where the units were displayed as 120 kilowatt un- um speed units that meant that whenever the whoever added them to open charge map um added them they put 120 kilowatts so when it came to a better route planner planning your journey they were assuming that you'd get 120 kilowatts at those units so we ended up in some locations taking much longer than a better route planner would have um, said. Um, There was also a case um, where one of them was being upgraded. But again, this is just early day stuff. You know, you have these kinds of issues. And then it's also about when you get there, is it going to work? Is it going to be reliable? But also if it's not working, how is that communicated in a way that means you don't end up wasting time? So, for example, with MFG, we had an ish- a situation where we got to the hub. There's lots of charges there. We reverse into one of the bays, and then we go to the the unit. We tap the screen, and then it says out of order. And it's like you know, the the your your driver is spending about five to ten minutes kind of doing that whole setup process and then finding out that this charger isn't available to them. Um, And then, you know, they have to move on to the next one. And when you add all of that up, you know, what could be in a car, the reason why I'm saying this is important because a car like the Ionic is a supposedly a zero to 80% in 18 minutes. But then if you spend 10 minutes trying to start and initiate a charger for whatever reason, that has an impact on your journey. And, Again, depending on the context of your journey, <laughs> that can be more critical than in some occasions and, and in others not so much.
0: You can't see me because we're not on video, but I'm nodding furiously in agreement with you here, absolutely.
1: <laughs> so um, I think a lot of the discussions we had during that trip were about how do we improve that experience? What are we asking for in that sense? And a lot of it, I feel like a lot of it is is coming down to the information that's provided to the user, and also the information that the operators are getting out of the charger, if that makes sense. So one of the things that the government really an- recently announced is the o- an open data standard, OCPI. It's a European standard. The idea of that is to really kind of make a lot of these design decisions for the hardware manufacturers and the charging operators in terms of what the data structure should look like, what the actual uh, message should be when we're saying the charger is available or the charger isn't working, what kind of uh, information and data we can pull out of the charger into the back office, which is ultimately the, the thing that feeds the data to the user through the likes of the charge point operators app or char- Map and stuff like that. And right now it's a bit of a mess in terms of different operators are using different dialects almost. So that means that, you know, some operators provide live live data, some don't, some provide this information. And when they're saying a charger isn't working, what they mean is it hasn't communicated. But in another case, it might mean something completely different. I think that is kind of a key to unlocking a better experience overall. So this is something the government is kind of has mentioned as something that they want people to adopt, and I think so. Some of the stuff that we were talking about during this trip, I feel like could be resolved in a few years, and and maybe in a few years it's not going to matter because there's going to be enough charges out there, enough hubs out there that you just if there's an issue you just shrug it off and move on. Um, I don't know.
0: Well, hopefully later on this uh, this season, I've got. Um the people from ZapMap coming back on the podcast to chat to me. So I'm definitely going to have a word about this whole standard that you've talked about and what what they see are the issues with some of the data that's been sent to them from, from the charge point operators, which they're then uh, sending out to their ZapMap users. So I think that's a good topic of conversation to uh, to have there. But just looping back to the original part of the question, following your Landsend Jonah John O'Groats trip, you ended up getting the ionic 5 yourself. Happy with that?
1: Yes, largely it's a great car, it's a brilliant car. I actually said to Andrew then because he asked me what do you think of the car you're going to you know you're going to get it and I was kind of like uh, I wish <laughs> out of it's kind of out of my league kind of thing. But we we managed to get lucky because um we had the id free on order for a company car from my wife and as it so happens, because there was continuous delays, we were kind of looking at alternatives and we managed to get an Ioniq 5 that was on its way already to the UK. And we were just like, okay, let's just, you know, let's just go for this. And it's it's a great car. It's It's definitely, it really does punch above its weight in terms of what Hyundai is known for. And it does turn a lot of heads in almost to an uncomfortable bit, uh, point because people are sometimes just staring at me and I'm like, uh, you know, what's going on here. And then they, you know, mention the car. Um, and yeah, we've, we've, it's it's quite amusing to see people's reactions to it. And I think, again, we need cars like that, that kind of get people thinking, Oh, wow. These electric cars are interesting. Like the car, um, it's not as efficient as we are used to, um, but uh, given its class and, and the size of it, I think it's fairly efficient. I have, again, from a data perspective, I have been collecting data about the charging speeds. So one of the issues is that if you don't have the Project 45 model or the ultimate model, which you've then spec'd with the EcoPack, which has a uh, Battery heater, you won't have a battery heater unless you pick those options. And what that essentially means is that in cold temperatures, the battery pack isn't going to be warm enough to give you any decent speeds. What you're relying on is rather than something active like a PTC heater heating up the battery, you know, allowing it to accept faster charge, you're just relying on the actual process of charging the car to passively heat the battery. And what that I've seen, that means is that if you turn up to a charger in reasonable temperature, uh, I mean, like, you know, 12 degrees ambient temperature, what that means is your battery temperature will be about maybe 10, 10 degrees. And what that ends, what ends up happening is if you start at like 50 or 60 um, state of charge, you're going to wait about 40 minutes to get to 80%. I've got some data on this and it's actually quicker uh, to start off with a lower state of charge because you give enough time at a faster speed to heat up the battery. Otherwise, you get about 30, 40 kilowatts, and that's a continuous 30, 40 kilowatts, which means that because it's not fast enough, it's not heating the battery quick enough, which means it's the battery isn't hot enough in order to accept faster speeds. So it kind of essentially makes the car in colder temperatures Unless you're getting, unless you're starting off below 30%, which honestly I don't do that often, unless I'm actually going on a long journey, then you're not going to get anywhere near the speeds that are quoted. That can be quite frustrating, I think, when it's not clear when you're ordering the car that that is the case. Hyundai have noticed this. They have said, okay, we're going to have the battery heater as standard from the next model year, which I think goes into production in July or something.
0: Presumably the model that Andrew Till had does have the battery heater on because I've noticed today he's on his way down to Rome and he's regularly hitting 220 kilowatts of charges on the way down there. So presumably not getting that issue, yeah?
1: Yeah, he does. Um, it's mm. only an issue on Ultima and below if you don't have the the extra pack.
0: Talk to me about EVA England. What's What do you do there? What's your work, uh, your sort of duties there? What does it entail?
1: Generally, I try to help out with the social media and the newsletter uh, mainly, but also anything kind of related to data I try to get involved with, provide advice, and I might do some my own kind of data exploration, which EVA England then uses for, um, you know, when they're discussing things, uh, trying to get insights that they then share with, you know, the government and people like that. Uh, but really it's a matter of all things. So um, as as volunteers, which most uh, EVA England, most of the team are, um, you know, there's only two uh, full-time uh, paid employees now, uh, which have only come on recently. We kind of get on, involved in various things. So I'm not a director, so I'm not part of the board, but mm-hmm. I still get involved in the you know, all the various activities. So like helping out with organizing the footage, fully, ch- fully charged um, attendance, also actually being there on the day and manning the stall. it, you know, reaching out to the members, trying to find people who have had certain experiences with like used, buying a used EV, that kind of thing. Really any, any way that I can help because they are all really hardworking. It's a, you know, they ha- a lot of them have a full-time job already and, then they're doing this on top. And it does require a lot of um, effort. So I just chip in wherever I can.
0: Last question. If you were king for a day, what would you change that would improve the uptake of electric vehicles in this country?
1: There's something that comes to mind straight away. And I'm always suspicious of those thoughts, (laughs) because they're a bit too obvious, but maybe. Um, So firstly, what I would do is in some way, force manufacturers to make more EVs. I think ultimately that is what's going to really accelerate the adoption. Um, You know, seeing is believing. The more EVs are out there on the road, the more that, you know, your neighbors, your friends have EVs, the more curious people get and they ask questions and they try to understand, you know, what EVs really are. Um, We can only do so much with, you know, education and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, especially if there are no cars (laughs) to to order Um, so I would say that would be my first thing I would kind of force them to build at least a certain number of EVs and gradually increase that and I think that's what the government is doing soon with the SEV mandate but if I was king I would just say just make EVs now
0: (laughs) I think that's an excellent point to draw it to a close so I appreciate your time Maz, thanks very much for being on the show It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. North Carolina company Outrider USA has launched what it claims is the lightest production 4x4 ever. The new Cougar is an all-electric, single-seat off-road vehicle designed to put outdoor adventures back on the menu for people with reduced mobility. And it's portable. It folds to fit in a compact hatchback, provided you fold back seats down. And it's the lightest vehicle in its class with base models started at about 130 pounds, which is 59 kilograms. The top powertrain option combines a 5 kilowatt four-wheel drive setup with independent adjustable suspension and a 6 kilowatt hour battery pack offering range figures between 80 and 140 miles. Big knobby tires on 20 inch rims contribute to some 7 inches of ground clearance. If you're into the outdoors, but restricted with your mobility, this might just be the thing you need. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. ZapMap is the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK. Use it to search for available chargers, plan electric journeys, pay for charging on participating networks, and share updates with other EV drivers. ZapMap is free to download and use, with subscription plans for enhanced features, such as using ZapMap in car, on CarPlay, or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter and musing If you want to support the podcast and the newsletter, please consider contributing to become an EV Musings patron. The link's in the show notes. If you don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis, but you enjoy the episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings, and you can do just that, ko-fi.com slash evmusings. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called, (laughs) so, you've gone electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p, your equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. Please check it out. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reaching search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingTV with the words It gets around, that maz. Hashtag, if you know, you know. Nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder, Simon. You know, his wife asked him why when she goes out in the evening and leaves him alone, she comes back to find all her makeup disorganised and her best shoes scuffed. Simon looked at her through a smoky eye and he told her,
1: Honestly, I'm, I'm I'm as clueless
0: as you listening. Bye-bye now.